Um, I have no, nothing to disclose. I work for the patient, no, not for anybody else. Now, this is hopefully what we'll accomplish uh, in this session. What it is, how it develops, how it is so important to hear the patient's narrative and, and what in neurological evaluation helps in the diagnosis. And obviously the psychosocial component, which is a prominent component in all chronic pain situations, is something we'll talk about. And what function does laboratory serve uh, in diagnosis? Now here are some questions, and um, let's see how you do to start off with. We're not uh, going to mark you. Neurogenic thoracic outland syndrome is a figment of the surgeon's imagination. Well, years ago, neurologists felt that was true. Is ruled out with a normal EMG nerve conduction studies. How many feel you can rule out this with a normal EMG? Okay, we'll leave that over. It's overdiagnosed. In the past, that was true. Not, probably not so much now, is ruled out by a negative ADSEN test. Now, you may not know what an ADSEN test is, but we'll go over it. Uh, and the answer to that is no, because an ADSEN test tests uh, vascular thoracic outlet syndrome, not neurogenic, although you can have a combination of the both is the resultant of traumas superimposed on underlying anatomical variations in the interscalene triangle, which is really the answer. It is a result of inability of the brachial plexus to glide. Yes. Is due to the scarring of the plexus. Yes. Is made worse by repetitive use of the extremity. Yes. Is a neuropathic pain condition. Yes is due to muscle imbalance of the shoulder and the neck, all of which participate in this. Um, and so it's all of the above. In neurological testing, we test to see if the brachial plexus can glide, normally can glide about five-eighths of an inch. Check to see whether the brachial plexus and the peripheral nerves are irritable. Pressure on each of these, if it gives a tenel, uh, which tests the irritability of the nerve with the signals going down the extremity. Check to see if there is sensory loss. Yes. In the assessment of neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, we want to know the dynamics of the injury, past management, inquired about marital relationships, and determine how well the patient is coping. In the management, Resistive exercises help? No, they make it worse. Surgery is indicated, sometimes. Psychological evaluation is indicated to rule out malingering? No. You can tell whether a patient's malingering or not by listening to their narrative and giving them time to talk. Time is the issue, of course. Narcotics are rarely indicated for relief of pain. That's not true. Treatment is a function of what is learned using the biopsychosocial approach. 
Now, this is an entrapment neuropathy, and with trauma in the setting of anatomical abnormalities in the interscaling triangle, trauma causes injury to nerves and muscles and subsequent scar entrapment, dysfunction and restriction. A, delta, and C, nociceptive fibers. The two nociceptive fibers that signal the sensory cortex that where you appreciate pain are the ones that are injured in this process, not the A-alpha, which is the muscle motor fiber. There's also injury to the paracervical and parascapular muscles, dysfunction, imbalance, postural change, and further limitation of the plexus. They present with sensory symptoms predominantly and weakness. Not motor symptoms, but predominantly sensory. Pain and paresthesias, because it's a sensory illness for the most part. And unfortunately, the diagnosis is discounted because there's no muscle loss, atrophy, there's limited neurological examination of the upper extremity, and the traditionally done EMG nerve conduction study only has a 30% uh, sensitivity. Uh, this is a type of study that I started doing um, and did for about six, seven years. It's a check of the A-delta fiber. You can test the A-delta fiber and the C-fiber to see how close, how close to normal it's functioning. And then using some software in it with a computer, you can uh, graft the functioning. No, sorry. Um, anything below this level here is within normal range. So here, the left brachial plexus in C7 and C8 are abnormal, as well as C6. So this suggests that the problem with the left plexus is C6, 7, and 8. But this is a piece of laboratory, and it has to be put into the context, which is critical, of the clinical picture, narrative, neurological examination. By itself, it doesn't, it should not stand alone. Um, I don't know how many people have seen patients here with neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. Then you know their story. And their story, unfortunately, and it's maybe, I don't know if it's still true, because I've been out of practice for about five years. But like Odysseus, uh, everybody knew who Odysseus was? Ulysses, um, the story of Ulysses. Um, patient's experience with the medical care profession has not been very good, uh, because either there's a bias or an inability of the physician to spend time with the patient or an inadequate examination. And frequently what happens, the patient is shuttled from one physician to another. Things are tried. Oh, it's carpal tunnel syndrome. We'll, we'll free up your carpal tunnel. But what happens is uh, nothing works because the whole, the narrative 
and the neurological examination, which are the key to diagnosis, are not done. I only have 10 minutes to spend with this patient. When you have a chronic pain patient, if you treat chronic pain, you know 10 minutes is inadequate and you cannot get the narrative and you interrupt the patient maybe not your style, but frequently physicians have been shown to interrupt the, the patient after 27 seconds, having said, tell me your story. And 27 seconds after that, the physician is asking questions. That throws them off. And they've been there before, and they don't trust you, and they won't give you what you really need. But if you listen to them, what happens is they'll open up and they'll tell you things you maybe not wanted to know about their lives and their family, et cetera. And therefore, it takes a biopsychosocial approach really to appreciate this. Now, these are the three types of syndromes that fall under neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. By far, the under thoracic outlet syndrome, by far, the neurogenic is the most common, subclavian artery, is uh, less common as is subclavian vein. Each of these syndromes has anatomical variations. We won't talk about the venous and the arterial, but I've operated on people both with venous and arterial um, syndromes, and it's clear that there are anatomical variations and the previous trauma or traumas that initiated. You take the venous component called Patrick Schroeder syndrome, and the patient has been throwing his arm up for some reason, whether it's athletics or whether it's a ballet or whatever it is, and all of a sudden, uh, now this is Frank, the first one was Frank Netter's, this is also Dr. Frank Netters. And you can see here, oh, wrong one. You can see here's C5, C6, C7, C7, C8, and T1. And they come down between the two scalene muscles. Uh, the, so this is a triangle. The base of the triangle is the first rib. And here's the anterior, and here's the uh, middle scalene muscle. The subclavian artery comes through here. So in this interscalene triangle, going from front to back, you have anterior scalene, subclavian artery, plexus, and middle scalene. And it's in this triangle where there are variations in the anatomy, both of the scalenes and other structures, uh, which I'll go into later. And so this is where uh, the problem frequently occurs. Now, another place it can be uh, obstructed is when the plexus comes out from underneath 
the um, Peck minor. So here's another Netter drawing. And you can see that here's the Peck minor. It, origin is the coracoid process of the scapular. And, the, and that's the tendon. And this is its insertion on these three ribs. The plexus comes out as well as the subclavian artery. And that's where it can be trapped also when the individual abducts their upper extremity. And that's initially was thought not to be very common, but is more common than we think right now. So in testing, one of the places to test is right at that point where it comes out. Now the traumas that create this problem are motor vehicle accidents, whiplash-associated disorders, cumulative trauma disorders as the old term is repetitive strain, falls, and tractions. Now, um, the, they're all very different. And some of one of them is more problematic than the others. If you take, if you take uh, the whiplash-associated disorder, where you get rear-ended, and it was shown that rear-ending at a slow speed can cause this problem. At a much faster speed can magnify the problem. So I need your help in figuring out what are the injuries that occur with a rear-ending. Uh, we're talking about neck, shoulder, uh, area, and arm. And what do you know um, in, from the standpoint of the position of the pa driver and passengers can make it worse. Anybody? I'm not going to give a lecture for two hours. Okay. Okay. So, right, the mechanism. So the first thing that happens is when you get rear-ended, the spine goes forward thoracic spine goes forward and then comes back because the, the chair hits it. Um, the head extends, uh, the upper neck extends, and part of it flexes, and then there's a flexion. At the same time, as the head goes up and comes forward, it ramps up and hits, may hit the roof of the car you may or may not realize that, and I had a terrible thing happened when I was a resident. We had uh, two passengers from a Volkswagen, uh, and uh, the driver, the husband, hit the roof of the car, and he fractured his, act, his uh, atlas and, ha and was just close to severing his cord. But so that's the mechanism of injury, but it's a function also of what? Yeah, the individual in the car. And what happens to the individual car? Energy. Energy. Obviously, the speed at which you really fast uh, can make it worse. When it's not so fast, uh, it, it's hard to prove that it's worse. What else? 
whether the individual has a seat belt. Um, yes, what else? Right, if the individual is holding onto the steering wheel. Uh, and obviously one of the things you can happen is you can crush your sternum uh, against the steering wheel. And the other thing is if you turn your head uh, in one direction or another, you can influence uh, the injury to the uh, vertebral column. Uh, but it's different from the other, as, uh, other injuries because you have vertebral column here that also can be injured, and all sorts of things can happen to vertebral column, uh, including fractures, tear of the ligaments, um, hemorrhage. And one of the things that um, physicians are looking out for are the zygoapophyseal joints. You know what the zygoapophyseal joints are? Does everybody know them? Okay. The zygoapophyseal joint, if we look at the cervical spine here, these are the zygoapophyseal joints right here. And there's uh, a membrane covering it, and this can be torn. It can hemorrhage in here, and you can fracture some of this. And a part of the symptomatology of the individual can be a zygoapophyseal injury. So the zygoapophyseal joints what else can be injured? Disc. What? The disc. What else beside the disc? Cord. Uh, cord. The tracks of the cord. And you know there are some recent studies that have been done that can show a demyelination of some of the tracks of the cord. Um, and we didn't know this before. We, there are sensory losses, you know, the spinal thalamic tracts and the uh, inhibitory tracts that come down from the uh, cortex. Um, we didn't know this before, but I think this is putting more scientific basis for understanding the injury than we had before because I think it's very important to understand the injury. Um, uh, that's the first thing. Then you go for the rest of the story, uh, the psychosocial components, because what the individual came in with, uh, the psychological, sociological thing that preceded the injury and followed the injury, made worse by the injury, uh, should be considered. Um, there are also um, muscle. And now this has a common and the muscle can be torn and can be stretched and then can be spastic and can have trigger points. Um, with respect to the whiplash-associated disorder, you can have a clavicular uh, a chromial clavicular separation, which, yes? Pardon me? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I don't know the answer. So these are, and nerves. You can avulse 
nerves with this injury um, if it's severe enough. Now, so that's the whiplash-associated disorder. Now, cumulative trauma disorder is a, is a lot different because it comes because of what? Repetitive stress, as in assembly line workers, as in those who've been working in a non-ergonomic fashion, as with some musicians. Uh, so that's a little different story because these are not quite the same. They create, they create an entrapment neuropathy as one of the end results, but there are other things that each of these individuals create. So. Uh, here we have spastic muscles, with trigger points, and we also have um, postural changes, which also occurs in this. But this is more prominent and becomes harder and harder to deal with as time goes on. So you can't treat all of these patients with the same uh, therapy. Um, the, this is a big component uh, of CTD because it changes the relationship between the shoulder, the head, and the neck. And I'll, I'll go into that a little later. The stretch injury to the brachial plexus is different again. Because here, and I have a case we'll talk about, the stretch creates more trauma to, to the nerves than the, uh, than the um, uh, cumulative trauma disorder. So these are different entities, and they need to be assessed um, each in their own way. And I'm just being repetitive. Uh, the gold standard is history and neurologic. That's what I was treated in med uh, learned in medical school, and it's still uh, it's still pertinent now with the time element that many individuals have when they're working for an organization uh, like an HMO or a medical group. You're only allowed to spend a certain amount of time with the patient. But these are very special situations. You need to spend more time. OK, we need to learn about the impact, how the individual is handling this situation. So we're going to talk about symptomatology, etiology, neurologic, laboratory, and management. So we need a diagnosis. And that's been the problem, uh, that nobody or few people spend time looking at these individuals. So they went off on tangents, carpal tunnel, uh, strained sprain. And if you're in the compensation system and you've been injured on the job, um, you get the, more of a runaround. We need to know the pain suffering basis, need to know individuals coping, need to know and role of narrative medicine. Daniel Carr and John Lozer wrote this book on narrative pain and suffering. If you've not read it, it's a reasonable um, reference to read because it provides a lot of good information and ways of looking at things. 
So we can divide the plexus into three parts, lower, upper, and entire. Uh, the most common frequently is the lower plexus. And the lower plexus gives pain across the neck, across the supraclavicular fossa, down across the clavicle, chest wall, inner arm, ulna forearm, in the direction of the lower trunk with dysfunction of the hand, dropping things made worse by repetitive use. So here is the pain comes across here, down the inner arm. This is the um, branch from the uh, medial cord. Here's another branch from the medial cord. And here's the ulnar innervation of the hand. Uh, so this is a sensory distribution of the medial cord. Okay, C8 and T1 join to make the lower trunk, which we talked about before. And it gives off uh, the medial pectoral nerve, innervates the pec major. Medial cutaneous nerve of the arm to the inner arm. Medial cutaneous nerve of the forearm innervates the ulna forearm, ulnar sensory and motor to the hand. Large branch forms uh, with the median nerve uh, from the lateral cord. Okay, so here again is uh, medial cord distribution. Now, this is a nerve that uh, comes out of the chest wall. It's the intercostal brachiocutaneous nerve. And the interesting thing about this nerve is it, it joins the medial cutaneous nerve of the forearm. Uh, from the surgeon's standpoint, it's right in the operative field if you're going to do a transaxillary resection of a first rib. So you see it all the time, or you hope to see it. Um, and the thing about it is um, it gives chest wall pain. And chest wall pain on the right uh, would fit with the syndrome. But on the left, since the pain also goes down the arm into the hand, is more suggestive of uh, angina. And many of my patients and many of other individuals have gone to the emergency room uh, because they were having, on the left side, pain in their chest, down their arm, into the ring and small fingers of their left hand. And they got checked out for acute uh, infarct. But really what it was was uh, the intercostal brachiocutaneous nerve uh, giving the symptomatology along with thoracic outlet. Now, lateral cord pain down the medial scapula border onto the anterior chest wall, anterior brachium, radial forearm, tingling numbness, thumb index, and long fingers, median nerve territory with dysfunction of the hand made worse by use of the extremity. C5 and 6 gives off the dorsal scapular nerve. I'm sorry, C5 gives off the dorsal scapular nerve, which supplies the rhomboids. C5 and 6 becomes the upper trunk. The upper trunk gives off the suprascapular nerve, which supplies super and infraspinatine muscles. C7 gives a large branch to make the upper trunk the lateral cord. And the lateral cord gives off the lateral pectoral nerve, supplies with the medial pectoral nerve. Uh, lateral curve lateral cord then terminates as it divides into musculocutaneous, which supplies uh, the biceps, the brachialis, the coracobrachialis, and a large branch joining the bredial branch, forming the 
median nerve. Now, if it doesn't seem to fit either upper or lower plexus, maybe it's a blend. Um, part of the problem is when you talk to patients, um, either you don't get a good history, they can't tell you what's happening, or it's happening so much of the time that they, they can't verbalize it. And so you really need to listen to them very carefully to see and sometimes ask them questions to see if you can pick it out. Um, so this is the uh, pathogenesis. Um, scarring, traction type of entrapment, muscle spasm, parascapular, paracervical, fascial tightness, traction on the brachial plexus. And so you get hemorrhage, edema of nerves, the two nociceptive fibers signal the somatosensory cortex. Um, so we've been there. And overused, underused muscles. You've got a muscle imbalance, particularly where you have uh, cumulative trauma disorder, there's a muscle imbalance. And this causes a change in the shoulder, neck, and the brachial plexus. The trapezius, upper fibers, levator scapular, which is interestingly not a very big muscle, but really participates in this a lot, levator scapula, uh, sternocleidomastoid, rhomboid major, scalenes anterior, med anterior medial, become spastic fatigue, do not support the shoulder, and cause the first rib to rise. Shoulder falls forward, head sometimes tilts to the side of the of the injury, and it pulls uh, on the plexus. And so here's one of my patients. If you look carefully, you can see that this shoulder here is down compared to that. Here is the posterior view. You see the shoulders down. The trapezius muscle, which starts in, in the occiput, it's, it's enormous muscle. Starts in the occiput, goes all the way down, and inserts on the entire scapula. Is not supporting the scapula well. Now, the anatomical variations are most interesting. And as a surgeon, I have... seen a lot of this. I was, um, I fortunately in my 50s, I got into thoracic outlet syndrome, and I had Dr. David Roos and Dr. Robert Sessons were my mentors, and it's always nice to find someone who is enthusiastic, who knows how to teach uh, in any part of your life, whether it's in college, postgraduate, or even well into the field. Uh, somebody who you respect, who knows how to care for patients, and both these individuals were really very good with patients. So there are variations in uh, anatomy. Um, and let me share with you, uh, this was a study done uh, by Gilead in 1970. And what he did is he found that the, uh, individuals 
who had loss of muscle in their hand. So this is really a muscle loss, which is not the traditional or common, most common neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, had long transverse processes. This is the C7 vertebra. Here's the transverse process, longer than the transverse process of the T1 vertebra on that side. And he had a whole series of cases some with cervical ribs, there's a little nubbin of cervical rib, but here's the transverse process much longer than the transverse process of T1. Um, now, in the development of the cervical spine, we go through the fish stage, if we still believe in evolution. Uh, we still believe in evolution. Um, and they have cervical ribs. So the cervical rib gets reabsorbed as we're, we're in fetal life, gets reabsorbed. Sometimes, under 1%, they're not reabsorbed. And there are parts of the, of the cervical rib that persist. And the long transverse process is one of the things that persists. Now, why is that important? Because at the tip of this transverse process, there's a band of tissue that goes down underneath the plexus and inserts on the first rib right behind the anterior scalene, and I'll show you that. So here, before we get to that, here's a cervical rib, not very common, and here's the plexus coming over it, but you see what's not included here is the clavicle. This is a crunch situation, both for the... Uh, uh, CAT1 and the subclavian artery, which is uh, the subclavian is right here. So this can this is the what most people would go along with uh, when they uh, if they find a cervical rib. Yes, uh, it's a thoracic allosinome. Here is um, an incomplete cervical rib. Sorry an incomplete cervical rib, and a band of tissue that comes down underneath the plexus. This is a type 1 band. This is a long transverse process of C7 and a band of tissue that goes down underneath the plexus, particularly CAT1, and inserts right on the scalene tubercle where the anterior scalene inserts. So those are... Um, now, I uh, direct your attention. This patient had a C6, C7 discectomy infusion, but what the surgeon missed was a long transverse process of C7. Right here. He missed it. And so the patient was not improved because the wrong operation was done for this process. So here's a type 1 band. Here's a type 2 band. And there's another transverse process. You probably can't see it very well. This is a type 3 band. Dr. Roos, my mentor, uh, uh, wrote articles about this type 3 band. This is a very common band going from the C7 transverse process down to the first rib, 
and um, uh, lifting up the T1 nerve. Now, this by itself won't cause a problem, but if you have trauma that causes postural change, it will. Here's a type 4, and a type 4 is an overlapping of the two anterior uh, two muscles, the anterior the middle scaling. And the plexus comes right between the two muscles. Now, I had a patient that I referred to a surgeon who had only a single anterior and middle scaling muscle. It was combined. So the two muscles were fused, which is another variation, and the plexus went right through the muscle, and that's what trapped the plexus, because these nerve, these muscle fibers can adhere to the uh, nerves and restrain their movement, and particularly in the setting of a trauma or traumas. This is a type 5 band, uh, which is uh, a common band. This is a fourth scalene muscle. This is called a scalene minimus. comes from C6 and C7. Here's C7, comes down and separates the subclavian artery from the plexus. This is a type 6 band, uh, the same type of muscle, but inserts on Simpson's fascia, which is the fascia that uh, aligns the um, apex of the chest wall. Okay, so we need to define the story, and, and, and so we know the symptoms change, and the patient can sometimes can't handle it, and then this frequently is changes the doctor-patient relationship of very negative valence. Now, the thing about sensory injury, sensory nerve injury, is that Sensory nerve injury um, doesn't stay dermatomal. If you get C fiber and A delta fiber constantly bombarding the spinal cord, the wide dynamic neurons, the sensory field expands. So if somebody has uh, an upper plexus, C5, C6, C7, what you find over time is that they will get cervical plexus symptomatology, C2, 3, and 4. Uh, they'll have pain in front of the ear. The ear will become numb. They'll get pain on the jaw. They'll get pain in the neck. And frequently, if it carries on further, they'll even get trigeminal nerve involvement uh, with findings on the distribution of the trigeminal nerve. So this is... Sensory fields don't stay dermatomal if the disease progresses over a period of time. And that's what sometimes confuses people uh, when you examine these individuals. But it's just what happens with nerve injury, sensory nerve injury. Back on all those entrapment things. Uh, yes. No, there's more than that. Oh, yeah. I think my buy on the situation is I go in, identify what the anatomical variations are. And it's amazing when you find a scaling medius 
that is pressing on the lower trunk. Here it is between the subclavian artery and the lower trunk. And it's just compressing the lower trunk. It's adhering to it and doesn't let it move. Um, and you look for other bands. You need, if you're going to do transaxillary through the chest, uh, through the axilla, and take out the first rib, which is, uh, you've got to take out almost the entire first rib. You can't leave any part of the first rib, particularly posteriorly, because that'll regrow and retrap T1. And I've operated on people where it retrapped T1. Uh, so you need to identify all the variations and make sure when you leave, it's completely uh, free. And you need to document that in your operative note. You can't not document it because you've got to tell the next surgeon or whoever follows you what you found. And, it's, and it tells the story. It puts it together. Okay, so, so uh, actually, go ahead. Actually, it sounds like that is kind of important because there's probably people that have had this surgery didn't have it totally identified. Right. You need to know. You need to put it down. And I've read operative notes where it wasn't in the operative note. And so I didn't learn anything, and the patient still had problems. So... How do we examine the patient? Well, we obviously need to know posture because posture is a big thing here. We got to know paracircumcal and parascapular muscle tenderness and trigger points because they're component and they sometimes need to be treated by themselves, uh, particularly levator scapula, infraspinatus, supraspinatus. These muscles need to be looked at and identified trigger points. How many of you do trigger point injections? Well, you know what this is all about. Because if, um, but in this, this is another component to the treatment of the patient. It, it may be the only thing you do uh, from the standpoint of putting a needle in. You may not do the operation, uh, but you have identified that this is what, and if you hit it right, what happens is the patient is comfortable for a couple of weeks. Um, uh, and then you need to do nerve tension tests, tenels, and I'll go over that in a moment. Uh, so the concept here is the brachial plexus is trapped. It does not glide. Five-eighths of an inch, most of the nerves glide. How much of all this stuff can you see with, with the latest sophisticated MRI? With what's called an MR neurogram, which is a special type of MR, with uh, special protocols and software, you can see the relationship of the brachial plexus. On the normal MRI, you can't see the relation to the brachial plexus very well. But on an MR neurogram, you can see the relationship of each of those nerves with the structures around. You can see if they're compressed. You can see if they're swollen. You, you can add to your understanding of this. Um, most everything, yes. Oh, yes. All right, so um, this is where we stop, and you have to be the performers. I, I, I'm tired talking. Um, what I want you to do is to show me where the brachial plexus is. How can you access the brachial plexus? Somebody, you don't, everybody speak up at the same time.
show me where you can find the brachial plexus. Come up here. All right, so you pick on, um, you put your finger down. Everybody do this because we're going to do a little work with each other. Put your finger down uh, right at the edge of the sternocleidomastoid. You all know where that is. And then go, po go posteriorly, and can you feel the anterior scaling? The anterior scaling comes up at your finger convex. You can roll your finger over the anterior scaling. Can everybody roll their finger over the anterior scaling? Don't press hard, it hurts. Anybody don't know where the anterior scaling is? Because I think this is a critical part of the examination. Everybody got it? Don't be shy. This is a learning experience. Okay. What? It's under the sternocleidomastoid. You feel the anterior scaling, which comes up convex to your finger. And then if you go just on the edge of the anterior scaling, lateral edge, that's where the plexus comes out. That's Herb's point. That's where the plexus comes out from underneath. Now, part of the examination is to do just what I did. Put your finger down, find the anterior scaling, find the plexus. Press gently. Put your just press. Keep on pressing. And the question is, does the patient have a positive channel? Now, what is a positive channel? Somebody. Yes. What is a channel? What does it tell you? Well, what does it tell you? What? How does the person respond when? So the nerve is trapped or is recovering from an injury because, you know, that's the way you tell whether nerve is recovering. You tap on the nerve, and as, you, as it recovers, the channel becomes more distal. So if your nerve is recovering from injury, your channel becomes more and more distal. If your nerve is not recovering from injury, you have a positive channel. And a positive channel, when you press the brachial plexus either above the clavicle or below the clavicle, where you can also get it, is the patient will experience pain, the pain will go down the arm, and they will have tingling and numbness of their fingers. And what was the last? Pardon me? Number three. I didn't hear you. Oh, uh, they will have pain uh, where you press, and the pain will go down the arm, and they'll have tingling and numbness of the fingers. That's a positive channel. Now, whether it's there or peripheral nerves, it's a similar sort of experience. Okay. Yes, you're okay. I need somebody as a demonstration model. Come on up. Okay. So that's part of the neurologic. Everybody can do that. That's not a difficult sort of situation. Uh, you don't have thoracic outlet, do you? No. Okay. Uh, you, what happens in previous classes, I get somebody who has thoracic outlet, and I didn't know it, so I start doing it. I said, oh, you have thoracic outlet? She said, yes, I do. Okay, so the nerve doesn't glide. Nerve is irritable, doesn't glide. Two things. Okay, 
So how do we test gliding? Let's say you have a problem with your right brachial plexus. If you tilt your head to the right, uh, left, okay, you're putting a stretch on your plexus, your right plexus, okay? And if you then abduct slowly your right upper extremity, max to 90 degrees, you're putting more stretch on your plexus. And what the, you can drop. What the individual doesn't like is that when you do the first maneuver, um, you have pain in the neck, in the right neck. Sometimes the hand tingles. And then when you abduct, which adds to the, to the test, um, you stretch the plexus more. And with stretching the plexus more, it gets worse. The pain increases, it goes down the arm, and you have tingling and numbness of the fingers. This is a stretch injury. Uh, Dr. Hunter, this is a high hunter maneuver. Dr. Hunter was one of the fine surgeons in Philadelphia who did a lot of work on nerve entrapment situations, not only plexus, but peripheral nerves. And he defined high, middle, and low. The high is usually for the lower trunk of the brachial plexus because when you, uh, the lower trunk comes out and goes down, when you bring, pull the arm up, tilting the head, you're putting a lot of stretch on the lower trunk compared to the upper trunk. But both can respond. So that's number two. Thank you. All right. So these are two maneuvers that anybody can do. And you do the other side too. And you don't tell them what you want. You just say to them, please, tell me what's happening. I want you to tell me exactly what's happening. And you document it. And so there you have, right in front of you, documentation of irritability and inability to move with the plexus. Now, the third, third thing is you want to um, test peripheral nerves. And since the peripheral nerves are the same nerve fibers as the plexus, same nerve fibers. So the median nerve has contributions from all the spinal nerves. The lower trunk has contributions mainly from CAT1. So that's um, what we've been doing. And so here is plexus. Here's the anterior scaling. Um, this is the phrenic nerve, so if you operate on it through above the clavicle, you have to be very careful about the phrenic nerve. <coughs> and here's subclavian, and here's clavicle. Um, now, we have three peripheral nerves. You all know about the median nerve at the carpal tunnel, and you know how to examine that. And interestingly, this can be positive too. So the question is, is this uh, what they call a double crush syndrome? That is two nerves trapped, plexus and median? Or is it predominantly just the uh, plexus that's a problem? Because if you restrain the plexus, the peripheral nerve will have tenel too, also. So it's... Uh, you have to pull the symptomatology 
what does the patient complain of predominantly? Is the predominant symptoms pain over the shoulder, down the arm, into the hand with tingling and numbness of fingers? Or is the predominant uh, concern of pain in the hand, uh, numbness and weakness of the hand, uh, more median nerve symptomatology? So you all know how to get the median nerve and how to test the median nerve uh, and get it to now. And you know um, how to stretch the median nerve like we stretch the plexus and pressure it, which w will give you um, uh, a, also a, a positive, may give you a positive response. Now you can also get the median nerve in another place. It can get trapped right here as it comes down through uh, between uh, over the pronator teres. It can get be trapped here. Uh, the ulna nerve is cubital tunnel. You all know what the cubital tunnel is. Everybody know what the cubital tunnel is? And you obviously, by defining symptomatology and examination, you can frequently assess Separate the two, cubital tunnel from brachial plexus, but sometimes it's both, double crush. Sometimes it's a triple crush, plexus, ulna nerve, median nerve. Now, there's also another entrapment neuropathy where the radial nerve comes down uh, and divides into a superficial branch and a um, posterior interosseous branch where the posterior incisosseous branch can be right under um, the supinator of the uh, forearm. Does everybody know what supination is? Does anybody doesn't know? Okay. Supination is like spitting in your hand. So I just supinated my hand. That's how I learned it when, many years ago. So this is supination, that's pronation. So you test all of these to make sure, somebody had a question? You test all of these to make sure you understand um, the reaction of each of these. Now, uh, this is a stress test. All these other tests are just short, single tests. They don't last very long. But Dr. Roos said, okay, um, what if you put your arms up in the surrender position and you open and close your hands slowly? Tell me everything that's happening when you do this. So this is Dr. Roos's test for uh, one of the things he does. Um, to test for plexus, irritability, and restriction. You know, it has the component of bringing your arm up, abduction, and, but it's a time test. It's a three-minute test. And usually people who have uh, plexus symptomatology, within the first 20 to 30 seconds, their hand is going numb and they want to put it down. So we have nerve tension test. We have irritability by pressuring. We have the three-minute stress test. Now, many individuals have 
sensory symptoms. All of them have sensory symptoms. So what I like to do, what I used to do, is I used to test uh, their sensory um, capability. And one of the things I used was a two-point static discrimination. Most people can appreciate two points when you put them in the tips of the fingers like that between two and three millimeters. Anything above three millimeters is not normal. So most of these people have abnormal sensory testing. This is an easy test to do. Um, so that's one. The other is I use a brush and a pin to test uh, touch and pinpoint. And I usually do it I usually do it over wrong one over cervical plexus, C2, 3, and 4. So C2 is right here, C3 is right here, C4 is right here, C5 is right on the shoulder. And I also do the three branches of the trigeminal nerve, olfactory, mandibular, and maxillary and mandibular branch. And I do it first with the brush, testing right with left, and I tell me whether there's a difference between the two, um, right and left. And then I do it with a pin and get right and left. So I have sensory testing. Last thing I do is I use a, a tuning fork and test the ulnar styloid left and right and radial styloid and see if there's a difference. This is carried by the A-beta fibers. So I get a sense if there's sensory loss. And I put it all together. And so if I can get if I can um, get concordance by reproducing the symptoms that the patient has on my neurological examination, stretching the plexus, pressuring the plexus, three-minute stress test, uh, going to the peripheral nerves, um, and also testing sensory, along with motor testing. Now, motor testing is... Uh, most of these people have weak arms, the arm involved, but they don't have motor loss because if you do EMGs, they don't have motor loss. So it doesn't, uh, although if they tell you right at the very beginning, my hand is weak, it's weak, and I've lost substance in my hand, they got a motor loss. Uh, and that's, a, that's an emergency situation because if they do have a cervical rib or a tight anterior scaling, you don't want to let that go very far because they're not going to regain any motor function. You'll stop it, but you won't regain it. So that's the neurologic. Now, you observe the hands, and there's been a lot of work done on complex regional pain syndrome, uh, CRPS. Without a nerve injury, it's called CRPS1 frequently, and people who have strokes have fractures, twist their ankle, uh, and they, um, for some reasons not totally determined, um, they will develop uh, 
uh, sensory changes, motor changes, uh, uh, sympathetic changes, and uh, their hand will get cold and sweaty, and uh, their nails will become brittle. They'll develop a lot of allodynia and allopathia, which are pain situations uh, much greater than they would with just uh, neurogenic thoracic. But this can be on top of neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. And when you look at these individuals, and this individual has CRPS, too, she has bilateral brachial plexus. You can see how the fingers, she can't flex the fingers. They're swollen. Uh, they're held this way. You, she doesn't like you to touch your hand. So this is w one of the observations. Look at this individual. His uh, wrist is flexed. Uh, he doesn't want to move his arm. He can't move his arm very far. Here's another individual with swollen fingers. All right, so we, we obviously go for muscle testing as part of the total physical examination. Now, I want you to tell me, I'll show you two pictures. Here's the front picture, and here's the posterior picture. What do you think this lady has? This is the anterior picture. And that's the posterior picture. If I told you she had a brachial plexopathy, what else does she have? Say that louder. It's drooping. Okay, you got it. Now, what does that mean? Okay. No, no. Uh, okay, go for the most obvious thing. Um, what supplies the trapezius muscle? What also supplies the, uh, the sternocleidomastoid? On old Olympus towering tops, a Finn and German viewed some hops. Anybody ever heard of that? On old Olympus towering tops, a Finn and German viewed some hops. Uh, olfactory, optic, oculomotor. So what nerve supplies both the trapezius and the sternocleidomastoid? The what? Called the spinal accessory. So this lady was in a terrible auto accident. And she sustained not only trauma to her plexus, but lost her 11th cranial nerve. This is a situation. And I treated this lady for eight years. Uh, did all the things I could do to help her. Uh, but you can't operate on this lady because without the trapezius supporting the shoulder, she, the, the plexopathy is not going to change. And so, unfortunately. But she was a good trooper. All right, so we went through here. Here's a case, uh, and I need your help. She's a 35-year-old female who is an assembly line worker who has worked doing the same job, same company, 10 years. She's five foot two inches tall. This frequently is true with this type of illness. Sorts items from an assembly line, which is at breast level, removing them that are defective, placing them in a box at shoulder level. Two years ago, she began to complain of shoulder fatigue and saw the company doctor. So what do you think is developing? 
if you do this repetitively, what happens? Uh, not yet, not yet. You're you're ahead of me. But what what happens when you do this on a repetitive basis? Mainly females, because uh, the muscle may not have the same blood supply, may not have the same volume as males, but males will get it too. So what is that called? CTD, cumulative trauma disorder. Her muscles are becoming spastic. If you were to feel her muscle, her trapezius, her levator scapula, her rhomboids, they'd be tight and they'd hurt. And maybe you'd find trigger points. Okay, so that's where we start. The company doctor told her she had a sprain strain, which is common, and gave her a non-steroidal, but he did not change her job description. This is so common in industry where, you know, they have this muscle problem, but they don't change the job description. So she continued to do it eight hours a day, five days a week, sometimes with overtime. I've overtime. Her shoulder distress got worse and was associated with daily occipital headaches. Uh, you know, trigger points in the levator scapula can cause headaches. She was falling behind in her job, not as efficient and productive as she once was. She'd previously been cited, interesting, <laughs> and praised for her achievement. What do you think is happening? Pardon me? Uh, okay. Uh, so, so the CTD is getting worse. And she's starting to develop occipital headaches. Okay. She vi revisited the doctor whose diagnosis didn't change. He sent her to physiotherapy with a diagnosis of sprain strain without direction to the therapist without a change in her job description. This is a big problem. If you send it to the therapist and you don't have a good diagnosis, um, then the therapist will have to examine the patient. The therapist doesn't know this illness. Uh, then the therapist can treat it very well. The therapy after three weeks made it worse and her symptom changed. She was having pain that went down between her right scapula and the spine. The pain traveled down the front of the right arm, radial forearm, and she had tingling and numbness, right thumb, index, and long fingers. She began to drop things with her right hand. So right now, we've had a change from CTD to what? So what part of the plexus? Upper trunk? Upper plexus, yeah, uh, median nerve. The uh, thumb index and long fingers. Say again? If she had a cervical rib, that would make it worse. Uh, yes. Um, if she had a cervical rib, she wouldn't have necessary plexus symptomatology. She might have arterial symptomatology. Um, but it could be both. It could be both. What? Is this called neurogenic Yes, it is. It is. So we have a postural change. Postural change. I didn't put down the fact that her shoulder was down and her head was to the side. 
of this. But this is CTD going into uh, with postural change and restriction of plexus. She again saw the company physician who thought it was carpal tunnel syndrome and left her in work. He only examined her hand. You see, he didn't take the whole story. She had no muscle atrophy, but had a positive tunnel over the median nerve proximal to the tunnel. He referred to her to a surgeon. The surgeon concurred. He did an EMG, which showed some slowing of the median nerve conduction across the carpal tunnel. He did not take the whole story. So without the whole narrative, you're on the wrong track. You're, you're in a uh, diversion. He re recommended carpal tunnel surgery. And you know why it isn't carpal tunnel. Symptoms are not carpal tunnel. Coming down from the shoulder, down the arm, and the whole story doesn't fit carpal tunnel. The surgeon did a right carpal tunnel release. Prior to the surgery, the patient was complaining of pain in the shoulder, down the arm, tingling numbness of the median nerve distribution. Postoperatively, there was no change. What went, what went worse? What went wrong? Did the wrong operation, wrong diagnosis. She returned to see him six weeks later with the same symptoms and said, you have to be patient. He said, you have to be patient and give it more time. Common delaying technique. Three months later, the same conversation took place, the same response. Meanwhile, the patient was miserable, not able to work, not able to do her housework, care for her kids, deal with her husband's needs. Things went from bad to worse. She saw other physicians who at most spent 15 minutes with her, could not understand what the medical problem was. They are sometimes called IMEs, independent medical examiners. They frequently are not independent. Frequently they don't function as doctors and so often they don't do a full examination. So it's a contradiction in terms. She became angry, just constantly discussed. She see a psychologist to see if this was in her head. Okay, he could find no evidence of the IME. There was no relationship between her symptoms and the work. She recovered from whatever illness she's had. Go back to work. She lasted three days and she was fired. Very common, at least when I was practicing. Okay, so we went over this. Um, obviously, we would have taken a story and done a better examination than he did. Okay, I want to touch on the Adson test because it's being taught, and unfortunately, I don't think it's being taught properly. Um, now, Adson was uh, chairman and professor of Mayo Clinic and neuro, neurosurgery in the 20s and 30s. And he said, and he proved, and he wrote it in an article in the Annals of Surgery, that if you took your, let's say the problem is on the right arm, um, and you took your arm and you brought it up about there, you turned your head toward that side, this is the Adson maneuver, took a deep breath and strained down like you're, having, you're doing a Valsalva maneuver, hard bowel movement, that if your hand if you lost the radial pulse, that that was positive. In the setting, in the context of 
that when you put your arms up, your hand would go not numb, but you couldn't keep your arm up because there was enough blood flowing to your arm. So this is power failure. This is power failure. Not neurogenic, not numbness and pain. They don't have pain. They don't have tingling and numbness, although they might have both. But generally speaking, this is power failure. And in the setting uh, of a cervical rib, tight anterior scaling muscle, there was compressing the subclavian artery. So this is vascular thoracic elbow syndrome. Does it go white? Yeah, goes white. I had a gentleman who was 67, 67, come to see me. And his complaints were not that. He said, when I shave with my right hand, I can't do it. I got to stop and switch to my left hand. So he kept on doing this. And what he was experiencing was power failure. And I got an x-ray of his neck, and there was bilateral cervical ribs. Nobody had seen it bilateral cervical ribs. X-ray of the neck is so critical in the assessment of these patients. You need to do it um, because you need to know if there's any bony abnormality. Now, most often it'll be negative, but it's worth whatever you spend on it compared to an MRI of the cervical spine where the anatomical variations, the anatomical findings may not fit the clinical picture. You can have a disc problem on, on, an, on an MRI, but the patient's not having complaints. Or you can have no disc problem and the patient's having complaints. So uh, the anatomy of the findings on an MRI of the cervical spine does not tell you whether you have a problem, unless they, they fit, unless your clinical picture fits the MRI findings. So um, that's Dr. Adson. Now you can have both. You can have both. Yeah. How would this patient normally present? What would their common complaint be? Oh, it can be varied. Uh, this fellow said he had trouble shaving. But when your arm goes up, um, it gets white and it gets uh, tired. You can't keep it up. Now, um, some people are not very observant of their own problems. And what might happen is that he might have had a peripheral embolus. Because as you insult the artery repetitively this way, it creates thrombus. And the artery narrows and develops a subnarrowing aneurysm. And you can throw emboli to your hand, to your arm and hand. Yes. Could you speak a little louder? I'm sorry, I don't hear you that well. Well, okay, you can answer that question. I'm going to challenge you, but please don't take any offense. Okay, and okay, so we have a subclavian artery. So generally speaking, the blood flow goes peripheral. So it would go into the arm. It would not go into the lung. If it was the venous side, if you had a venous thrombosis, then you have a potential for 
getting into lung. But what happens with the Paget-Schroders, which is where the venous uh, obstructs, or the subclavian vein obstructs, it gets thrombosed all the way. It gets thrombosed. And I don't, I have about five or six patients who had Paget-Schroders. Nobody had uh, an embolus lung. But I imagine it's a possibility if something broke off and went centrally. Pardon me? My daughter did have multiple PEs in both lungs with this thoracic outlet syndrome and also has a necrotic area um, Oh, so she had a subclavian artery. Okay, uh, I have not had that experience. It's been miserable. Yeah, that's not an easy situation. And I feel that, you know, I'm coming from the patient side now, I'm a registered nurse, but coming from the patient side, starting with that physician at the company, I would question what is his background to have, that's not the first repetitive motion injury he's had. So is he a physiologist, you know? I don't know. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's a very devastating. It is. It is. It is. And particularly when they don't believe you. And then, then you don't believe yourself. You question yourself. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a problem. What time is it? Okay, we have more time. There's another case that I want to go over with you. Okay, that's Dr. Adson. Okay, this is a 34-year-old male. This is a real challenge, um, a psychosocial challenge, and a man who wanted to be cured right away. So here's a man who without any previous left neck, shoulder, arm symptoms, he was injured while working for a landscape company. He was moving a tree with its base, dirt and burlap bag, with his left arm, <coughs> 20 yards to a previously dug hole. The combination weighed 300 pounds and his head turned to the right. While moving it, he sustained severe pain in his left neck, which went down across his left shoulder anterior surface, the left arm, radial forearm, or tingling and numbness, thumb, index, and long finger, immediately had difficulty in moving his arm, and he dropped things with his left hand, his non-dominant hand. And I saw him 26 months after his injury. Now, what does this sound like? Um, it's not quite the same, though. Different etiology. Anybody? What does it sound like? Anybody who's willing to put their head on the line or walk at the end of the blank? I won't cut the blank off. Some kind of subclavian artery Okay. All right. Now, what are the symptoms? This is the key. What are the symptoms? Pain in the shoulder, pain down the arm, tingling and numbness in the distribution of what nerve? Median. Median. So this is not artery. What? It's plexus. It's plexus. 
but it's a different etiology. It's a stretch injury. I've had a couple of people, or more than a couple of people. One lady was working as a school nurse, and she grabbed the door to open it, and somebody on the other end of the door, on the other side door, pulled the door and pulled her arm out, dislocated her shoulder, and she had a stretch injury with that. So dislocation of the shoulder is one of the ways it can occur, because the plexus goes with the artery. Uh, right under the axilla and out to the arm. So if you pull on the plexus, uh, you can do a number on it. Okay, so we obviously have to, let's see if I, okay. We obviously have to get the story right, which the surgeon did not, which we were coming up to. And then we have to think of what the possible diagnosis and is there any appropriate laboratory testing? Okay, so it went up to a cervical spine, developed a cervical he headaches, which is an upper plexus uh, territory. These headaches and his arm symptoms were made worse when he used his left arm. Here's where the rub comes. He's divorced and he has a significant other who has five children. She has an entry level job paying little he has no health insurance. He comes to me angry, now 26 months later, angry, in pain, wanting me to fix him. That's a big red flag. You can't fix these people, no matter what you do. Uh, and his pain level is pretty high. Um, so you can see the psychosocial issues. Uh, and you can see you're going to have to deal with his anger. So I calmed him down, and I said, let's figure this out. And you can see he has unrealistic goals. Fix me. Uh, and you, he needs long-term planning. This is going to disable him for the rest of his life. Uh, so he has an elevated tender left shoulder, positive left brachial plexus nerve tension tests, and L's over the left at Herb's point, ulnar nerve, cubital tunnel, median nerve, pronated teres, radial nerve, arcata frush. Frush is spelled wrong. It's F-R-O-H-S-E. A positive elevated arm stress test. Sensory loss. Uh, Detentive reflexes uh, were equal. So he has everything that qualifies him for um, an upper trunk situation, stretch injury. Anybody have a question? Trapezius muscle, spastic, yeah. Levator scapular. You know, they're, they're foreshortened and the shoulder's up. EMG done twice with normal limits. Cervical spine showed no abnormalities. MRI of the cervical spine showed a herniated disc at C5-6 with mild right C6 neuroforaminal compression. Herniated disc at C6-C7 with mild left Neuroforaminal compression, again, anatomical, but the right doesn't fit because he has no symptoms on the right, and I tested his right. Okay, this is his A-delta scan, and this is his, I'm sorry, this is his left. So here is uh, C5, that's C7. Uh, I'm sorry, C6, C7, C8. 
So C5 is way up. Now, when it goes below the line, then you have to add this distance to here. So that would probably bring it up to here. Um, the way the A delta scan works is you send a signal of 250 hertz, which gets the C fiber to fire, I'm sorry, A delta to fire. And you slowly increase the millivolts until the patient says it's tingling or it's buzzing. And then you do it several times so you get a sharp onset of symptoms, which is when the nerve fires. And then you put it into uh, the computer with software that's already been programmed. And you do right first, left second, and you go from C2 to T2. And then you print it. And this is what it shows. So he clearly has a left brachial plexus problem. But this is laboratory. And laboratory has to put in context of clinical picture. It doesn't stand by itself. OK, so there were no other additional studies that were needed. Um, yes, the diagnosis was plexopathy. And uh, psychosocial issues were major. He saw a neurosurgeon. Um, and here's where, fix me. And so the neurosurgeon says, I'll fix you. So he did a C6, C7 discectomy. Um, and treated with uh, collar. MRI three months showed that the fusion was solid. And then he was begun on resistive exercise. That should be a red flag to anybody with a nerve injury. Resistive exercises are not appropriate because if you, they make things worse. If you have the wrong diagnosis, you're going to make it worse. The symptoms of the left upper extremity, which had abated in the post-operative period, returned with renewed fury. He developed the same symptoms in his right upper extremity exam, showed the same positive findings on the right, albeit much milder. And what went wrong was the surgeon did the wrong operation. He shouldn't have operated on this. This is not a case you operate on. This is a case you try to figure out what approaches he needs, and he needs more. I treated him for his pain. The surgeon wasn't treating him for his pain, even though he operated on him. And he didn't give him enough medication postoperatively. OK, here's another A-delta scan after, this, after his um, work hardening exercises. And you can see that this is left. Left is still up. This is right. And right is up in the territory. Uh, where it shouldn't be. It doesn't make the diagnosis. The diagnosis is clinical. So uh, traction injuries are immediate, more severe. More... What? No, 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 no. He did not develop uh, uh, autonomic symptoms. He did not develop allodynia, allopathia. He did not develop uh, swelling of his arm and coldness of his hand. He didn't involve uh, brittle nails. He didn't involve uh, dystonia issue. This is not CRPS. He didn't develop CRPS. 
it's it's highly variable. You can't predict uh, if it's a real, real severe situation. They might, and it's long. Frequently, it's long history. If yeah. you had seen him in the first few days, what have you been, what would you have done? Um, I would have uh, done the examination, taken the story. I would have told him what I thought it was. I would have advised him, but he was impatient. He wanted to be fixed. And so when the neurosurgeon gave him the opportunity to be fixed, in quotation marks, he jumped at it. If you'd seen him initially, would, would what you done treatment on steroids? Or, I mean, no, 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 no. I would have educated him about his illness. There's a, there's a lot that goes on in education. The patient has to understand the illness. They have to understand their role in the illness. I'm getting to it. Let me, let me go further. Okay, so let's leave laboratory alone. Um, MR neurography is what I mentioned earlier. Now, psychosocial assessment is critical uh, because in my experience, um, the psychosocial component of the illness is sometimes bigger than the biologic. Oh, there are all sorts of things. I have one case, a lovely lady that I operated on after a motor vehicle accident. Uh, I got about a 50 to 60% improvement in her clinical picture. Uh, she was in another auto accident. Uh, the symptoms returned. I told her, Nancy, you can't get into a car. I operated on her again. She was improved, and she got into a car, and she was in a third auto accident. It was just tragic. It's just repetitive. And her husband, and this is just an experience I'm sharing with you, so I'm not making a generalization, but her husband couldn't handle it. She was not the lady he married. She couldn't work. Uh, she complained. She couldn't do the housework. And he was having trouble, and they were having uh, marital difficulties. And I support her all along. Then, interesting, the shoe was on the other foot. He develops acute myocardial infarction, heart attack. Um, they operate on him immediately to do bypass, which is sometimes done. And um, uh, it's through the sternum that they did the bypass, so they spread the sternum. And when they spread the sternum, they gave him bilateral brachial plexopathy. Because if you spread the sternum too far, you can stretch the brachial plexus. And so here, for the first time, he couldn't use his left arm. He had trouble with his right arm. He was miserable. And she had to care for him. She had to go back to work because they had no income. And she had to make sure he was comfortable. There's a moral to that story. You work that out. You work that out. Uh, um, but uh, these are critical things because these people are devastated by losses. They're not the same person. And they feel so helpless. Um, Well, I think that helps. I think that's one of the things you have to address. 
and you have to do an assessment of whether he is a, has the potential uh, for abuse and diversion. Uh, you go into the story, is he addicted to anything? Uh, has he had trouble with drugs before? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, but when you have severe pain, uh, there's nothing you, you have no choice, really. If it's acute severe pain, you need to use narcotics. There's no, if you had a kidney stone, you wouldn't want them not to use narcotics. You've got to use narcotics. I'll, get, I'll find it. Okay, there you are. All right. All right. Okay, helpless, hope, useless, hopeless, depression. Depression is a concern. And you go into the impact, how the patient's coping. You validate them. You tell them yes. Because they've seen many physicians before, and they've not been validated. And for sure, you have a medical illness. This is a real medical illness. You educate them about it. It's your responsibility to tell them what it is, and you tell them how they are going to be in charge, and you will be their rabbi. Rabbi? What? Rabbi? I'm, I'm Catholic. What? Priest? No, rabbi. Rabbi, small r, means guide. you be their rabbi. I'm Jewish, but... But rabbi small r means guide. So you're going to be there for them. You're not going to abandon them. You're not going to abdicate your responsibility. Keep a diary. Figure out what makes it worse. Because there are things you can do. Learn about your arm and what you do and change it. So there are basic principles of change, adapt. Uh, and there are things that your phone and things the way you carry your arms. Um, and also, and, um, oh, sorry. Uh, okay, so the levator scapular, is, along with the trapezius, is the coat hanger of the shoulder blade. Um, and it's overused, spastic, and dysfunctional. And so there's the trapezius. So what I've told my patients, and I've facilitated, Support your shoulder, your arm, with a um, sling and swathe or a um, uh, a device that you can use uh, that will prevent your shoulder from dropping. Because when the shoulder drops, it makes everything worse. When your arm is supported uh, with an arm support, um, but you take it out, you don't leave it in all the time. It, it makes your pain less and your symptoms less. Pace. Don't do everything the way you used to do it. And part of the problem is people who I've operated on and I've went through this with them uh, go back to their usual way of doing things, which unfortunately uh, is, puts them in trouble. And delegate. Give heavier tasks to those around you. Now that means the family has to understand. So you bring the husband in and you talk to both patient and the husband and you explain to them so that he can participate. 
um, uh, physical therapy, you've got to be careful that as you do the therapy, you don't create more nerve tension, because as you create more nerve tension, what happens is everything gets worse. And this is all related to physical therapy. Now, cognitive behavior therapy forms a very important part in, in dealing with people with chronic pain. And you all know about cognitive behavior therapy? Um, reframing questions in positive terms, what pain is and how you can gain control, how do you modify self-talk, why catastrophizing is so destructive, uh, why denial serves no useful function, um, and all of that. Pharmacy, you've got to use medication for the pain. Um, you got to advocate for these people, and you got to teach them how to advocate for themselves. They don't know how to advocate for themselves. They don't know how to ask the doctor the right questions. Why are you doing this test? Can you explain it to me? What is this therapy going to do for me? <clears throat> What's the cost-benefit ratio of this therapy? All of this is critical. <coughs> if you don't do it, they don't, and you got to push them to do it for themselves. Um, and they need to know and not be insulted and turned off. Unfortunately, physicians don't have time, and, but there should be some physician providers, extenders, who could facilitate this communication if you can't do it yourself. Okay, surgery. Now, uh, it's, it has a role. Obviously, if you have muscle loss in your hand due to a cervical rib or a long transverse process of C7, uh, you need to deal with that right away because you're going to lose that muscle and the only thing you can do is to stop the loss. You're not going to regain anything. Now, most of them are sensory situations, so they're not muscle losses. But if you have an anatomical finding, which you can see on x-ray or on MR neurography, um, or they have a clinical situation where really uh, is, is getting worse and you've tried all sorts of therapies, then it's possible. But you've got to watch out. Stretch injury of the brachial plexus. Don't gain very much from that. Cumulative trauma disorder, got to be careful because you've got to deal with their postural change. And so you've got to modify that postural change uh, preoperatively, hopefully, and certainly work on it postoperatively. Um, Whiplash-associated disorder, if you don't have other issues associated, maybe you can gain from it. Uh, falls that create the problem, uh, which we didn't talk about, uh, maybe. But you've got to sort this out to see whether the benefit-burden ratio favors uh, the benefit rather than the burden, because you don't cure anybody. Although I must say, I have one patient. One patient out of 400 or 500. It's a lady who crashed her car into a tree. Single auto, single accident. And she ended up with upper plexus on the right. And I examined her. She was hesitant. She didn't want the surgery. We waited two years. It got worse. I, she finally said yes. So I took out her anterior scalene muscle, which is the way I do upper plexus, did upper plexus. And she got 
a cure. Never happened before. I've never gotten a cure before. 50-60% improvement. Some don't. Many do improve. Um, and so she was very happy. She went horseback riding. Never let her go horseback riding. She went swimming. I wouldn't let her go swimming using the crawl. Um, and she did everything. Then one day, she was cutting the grass around her home. And she had her hand on the lawnmower. And the lawnmower got away and pulled her arm. So she stretched her brachial plexus. And everything got worse. And I couldn't give her back what she had lost. Uh, yes, we tried it. It didn't work. We tried everything. It was just, it was just heart rendering. I didn't tell her not to go horseback riding. I didn't know she went horseback riding. I didn't tell her not to go swimming. I told her, just be careful with your arm. Don't do repetitive type of work with your arm for long periods of time. She was beautiful for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, this happened. It's unfortunate. So, but, but prior to surgery, you need to explain to the patient what the benefit-burden ratio is with respect to doing the operation for them, what you hope to accomplish, what you think the goal would be, not what they would like. Uh, you hear what they would like, but you make sure they understand that prior to the surgery, this is what you can expect. Not fantasy situation, this is reality.